This is The Strategist, episode 983. My name is Zane Belcher. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, what is going on? It is not a Sunday, Stephen. Yeah, no, it, we sometimes record on Sundays, except when, you know, it's Easter Sunday and uh, you're not available. I'm a big Easter guy, so I wouldn't be available. It's true. No, of course not, for sure. Yeah, very reasonable. Yeah. Don't talk crazy talk. You know? uh, s- speaking of things that are crazy, Stephen Carter, you've got an announcement for us. Do you not? <laughs> I do have an announcement. <laughs> I do have an announcement. After what can only be described as the ridiculously successful Calgary event, uh, our live show on the day that uh, the leadership results were supposed to be ready on April the, I don't know, 12th, something like that. Who can remember? Uh, we are now doing another live show on the date when the uh, the leadership results are definitely going to be announced. On May the 19th, we will be in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Maharaja <laughs> Hall. Did I do that right? Did I get it? Uh, uh, you laughed we, right at me. You exceeded Maharaja. our very low expectations. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how I would the put address, it. So here's the thing. The address. Read out the address. Here's the thing. <laughs> read out the address of the phone number. <laughs> Actually, Listen, can I go that. back? Can I go back? Yeah, can I go back? Please. Here's go, what please. I want to say. Here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. We got fucked by the art center so hard. We are now trying something different. So we are selling. They st- By the way, still haven't paid us. Do we have any money? No, we don't have any money. You know why? Because they haven't paid us. Because the arts commons is fucked up. But, Jesus Christ. So we're trying a different plan. And this time we're selling our own tickets. Right, Corey? Yeah. Is what you've told me. That's great. TheStrategist.ca. You're, you're really you hitting can, the important points here, Stephen. You can buy your fucking tickets. <laughs> I like that people tickets. want to know about our accounting. <laughs> We're selling our tickets by ourselves. We sell our ourselves. Own We're selling our own at TheStrategist.ca. People want to know where they can get the tickets. They want to get they, the tickets. The tickets are at TheStrategist.ca. <laughs> May 19th. The what is, day what after day? the leadership results will be known. Uh, okay, well, that's good to that's know. Good. That could have helped that's people. Good. The day after would have helped helpful. I said the 19th. You said when they'll definitely be announced. You know, they'll be announced any day after the 18th. We could have done the show June 23rd, and your intro would have also applied, Carter. So thank you for letting yep. people know. Let, Thursday, um, the day after. My May point 19th. is, you go to the strategists <laughs> live. You go to the strategists.ca, not live, because that, that goes to Flair Airlines. You go to the strategists.ca and you buy. When we asked you, are you ready to do the promo? You said yes. I wrote it down. Okay. Maharaja. (laughs) Go sit in the corner. Go sit in the corner. (laughs) May the 19th. Tickets at the strategists.ca. The UCP leadership results are being announced May 18th. We are doing a live show on May 19th in Edmonton at the Maharaja Hall. Now that I've got everything out, tickets are, you might be curious to know the price, which Stephen, I don't think managed to get out. Do you think they care what the price yeah, is? They're tickets, already buying them. Tickets are thirty dollars. Ding All ding, of the proceeds ding, go to ding. us. There is no charitable benefit in any way, shape, or form. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, it's going to be a hell of a time. Eight o'clock Thursday, May nineteenth. Uh, from the Martha Cohen to the Maharaja. That's how this group rolls. Nice. Okay? That you totally know this is a big okay. step up. Yeah. That's good. I, I, I feel like we've got our episode title. I'm Have you guys that. seen the pictures on this place? Because if the lighting's yeah. like this, it's no, going to be spectacular. No, listen, let me tell you something. They have got a wide array of love seats that the two of you are going to be sitting on. Okay? They've got a wide array <laughs> can we, of wearing... Can we go on? Can we go on? I beg you, can we go on? a beautiful selection of sectionals, <laughs> I, by which I, I mean... I yearn Chairs for the days of the 60-minute episode on this shit. Can oh, we go They're just going to be so close together. 
I may even want to let people vote on what Are love really seat you guys sit on. I may seat? want to let people. I, Just... I may want to ask people what love seat you guys sit on. Um, oh my god, Carter, have you been be to it, an Indian banquet hall before? Have I? I've been in politics for twenty years. Of course, I've been to the Indian banquet halls. This is Fantastic. true. This is this is ground zero for all things political. We're looking forward to it. May nineteenth in Edmonton, Alberta. Tickets at thestrategist.ca. This is a Thursday. This is the day after the UCP leadership review results. We'll have a lot to talk about. Carter, yes, you're putting your hand up now. Is there something no, you've written down that you no want to confirmation butcher for us? That Patrick Brown will be there because there's a crowd of three hundred people in an Indian uh, banquet hall. So. No confirmation. He might be there. Okay. Well, that's uh... Patrick Brown. Okay. Carter, if you our, guys, if our the audience, audience is fucking any... love that. The... Hang on. I'm going to go. Why to do see you think there's going to be brown people at the banquet hall? This is no. There's going to be 300 people at the banquet hall. He doesn't care if they're brown. He's not racist. God. You know, you're just you're Why coming you... with the heat today, Carter. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad good. you interjected with that. It's really. I mean, I think the technical term it. is the spice, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> what you think? Yeah, I did the the banquet hall. It's the spice. Are we okay. good? Corey, is there anything else you want to mention? Strategist.ca also, no. also has Okay, also has merchandise for some fucking reason. I don't know how that happened, but anyway. I bought a pillow. Thank, pretty thank excited. You. <laughs> thank you. Let's move it on to our first segment. Our first segment, door number eight, tries to get into second place. Carter, Patrick Brown is what we are talking about. Oh, well, at good. least that's what we're starting our show See about. See how you know, I did the whole joke about Patrick Brown there? That was his lead-in. Joke is uh, definitely <laughs> not what strong. I call it. Yep. I a marginally, marginally racist comment is what it we wasn't probably even leave racist. At. I don't oh know. We'll, we'll, we'll let, we'll let people so, judge. You're so culturally sensitive. <laughs> Can't wait to see you two on a love seat. Corey, are you loving this or what? <laughs> yeah, so much. So, Thanks for shaving like, for the live, the live show, Hogan. I, yeah, I'm on Jeez. vacation. It, I'm wearing a collared shirt. You should be thankful. Oh, Actually, you know what? Can I say something? Somebody <laughs> pointed out to me the other day that my whole vibe and Pierre Poliev's whole vibe were, were kind of close, you know, between the hairstyle and the glasses and the suits. So and like I might have to mix down to people that, that <laughs> well, the whole talking down to just being like very procedural and annoying. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. Very much the same. Vibe. Okay. That's I, great. I, Thank I'm you. channeling, uh, I'm channeling Sheree. So I guess that means that, you know, Zane's uh, Patrick Brown. Well, okay. Well, Carter, go. let's talk about this. Okay. Uh, Patrick Brown is in the media with a process piece about his campaign. It's about how he is reaching out to multiple communities, many of them South Asian. Uh, the article written by the Canadian Press talks about a glimpse into his strategy can be found. I'm quoting here. In the video shared on his Facebook page, that those who attend such events, including a meeting that Brown had with the Muslim community, the Tamil community, the Sikh community, the Nepalese community, it really digs deep into his his what I'd say you know South Asian and and religious community outreach, cultural community outreach. Carter, I want to talk about that, which is a sensitive pol- a concept in politics. You know, when we 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 even have it being called sensitive for what it's called. Is it multicultural? Is it cultural? Is it South Asian? Is it religious groups? But this outreach that Patrick Brown. I shouldn't say specializes in, but let's just say in the past has shown a tremendous ability to move certain communities and at least reach certain communities. I want to talk about that. But I also want to talk, Carter, about the concept of a process piece in the media, what that is, how it gets into into the media. So before we talk about Patrick Brown in in, in particular, do you mind defining, because I saw you smile there, Carter, what a process piece is? And do you feel like something like this qualifies as one in, in your estimation? Absolutely, this is a process piece. This is the very definition of a process piece. Um, imagine that 
you know, pro the media has a diet of only two things, uh, vegetables and candy, right? So policy is vegetables. The media don't want to cover policy at all. They don't like eating vegetables. They find vegetables are a little, you know, they don't taste as good. If you had the choice between eating, eating vegetables or eating candy, you would always choose candy. Well, candy in this case is process stories. Process stories have very little to do with anything except the behind the scenes glances. Um, and so, you know, in the Nenshi campaign in 2010, we ran a process story, a number of process stories around how we use social media, how we were using an app, how we were the first campaign to really dig in and how important Facebook was. All of these things are process stories and they generated dozens and dozens of media articles. We did 14 policy releases, 14 policy releases for the Nenji campaign. We got one article, one article on any of our policy pieces. Um, when his signs were vandalized, process story. When a brick went through the window, process story, right? Those are all process stories and those process behind the scenes stories generate I would say conservatively, at least 20 times more media than um, policy stories. We're, you know, the explaining why a policy exists. Corey, don't you shake your head at me. This is why I won campaigns, and this is why you were to the liberals. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, I, give, me, give me your take on Carter's vegetables and candy uh, analogy. No, I, I think it's, it's different. Uh, it may end up in the same place, but... Ultimately, it's about newsworthiness, right? And and what is ultimately going to be getting eyeballs and what's going to be selling newspapers, getting people to tune in to the six o'clock. And that has to do with a couple of things. And human interest is one of them. And people love a bit of behind the scenes in the sense that they're getting some inside information that they mm. wouldn't get if they were just reading the policy briefings. And yeah, the media loves process stories. And you tend to get process stories in the valleys when there's not a lot of actual policy news. There's not a lot of actual substantive news. I would define process story a little bit more narrowly than Stephen. Like I wouldn't call a brick through the window of the Nancy campaign a process story. I would say a process story would be more, um, you know, the reaction, like what happened behind the scenes when mm. all of a sudden, uh, you know, Stephen Carter gets the call at 1 a.m. and, you know, he he's in a dark alley disposing of brick remnants and, and his okay. gloves. <laughs> I did <laughs> not throw <laughs> the brick through the window. Okay. Okay. Wow, well, on the record. On the record, good. Um, <laughs> for the first time. But the point would be, <laughs> yeah, for the first, uh, but the point would be, this is the story about how the campaign reacts, how it goes into crisis mode, how it how it builds itself, how it spins itself out. Similarly, after the Nenshi campaign, there were a lot of stories about how Nahed Nenshi went from nowhere to victory, and th those yeah. are process stories. And so, what Patrick Brown has managed to spin out into the media here is a story about how he's active in a lot of, um, you know, cultural communities. And I would say generally any strong community is an opportunity for politicking, right? Churches are an opportunity to sell memberships, you know, tight cultural communities, an opportunity to sell memberships, anything like that. So I think it's funny that politicians tie themselves in knots on this. And, and I think it's kind of gross how they always default to ethnic community as, as the default, because really they're just talking about a group-based outreach thing. But what this really is, is Patrick Brown working a story to get out there a theory of victory because even us i'm looking at this screen i'm looking at the three of us here we we made a lot of jokes about patrick brown entering the race what the fuck is mm -hmm. he doing right mm -hmm. door number eight right as you uh, as you referenced it there and he doesn't want to be a joke he's got to create a compelling way that he can potentially win for a couple of reasons one is nobody wants to join a losing campaign and two mm -hmm. is nobody wants to cover a losing campaign 
Corey, those are really good reasons. I, I agree with your perspective here around what he's trying to do. Carter, let's park the process story, how you get it into the media, et cetera, till the end here. Let's talk about Patrick Brown. Give me your assessment of what he's trying to do here. So this is an article written by the Canadian press. So it's got distribution in, in most of the major newspapers, National, National News Watch, et cetera, uh, with the syndication. Talks about the outreach to these communities. You watch these videos. The headline on certain publications, because it is, of course, syndicated, says, if you show up, I win, which is a quote that he he's ultimately been making to these groups. What do you think he's trying to do here? And perhaps even broader, do you feel like this is untapped potential that that if you are a pure polyevra, do you care about what he's trying to do here? Or are you just sticking to your lane? Um, and, and do you think if you're on the other side here, this generates a bit of, of fear or queasiness if you're in the in the front runner campaign? Um, I don't think it necessarily generates fear. I mean, I think that the problem with this type of campaign is it can exist underground. Um, it's hard to see these types of campaigns. Um, we broadened it out. I mean, it, it, you can call it a community campaign. No one, no one calls it like an ethnic campaign anymore. You know, like it's a community campaign or the language that I like to use is social networks. So you're mm. trying to find people with strong social networks. That's what Corey was alluding to. And you can go and find them with hockey teams, children's soccer teams, yeah. you know, like there's any any place that you have a group of friends, a book club, that's a social network. But there happens to be social networks that exist um, in in what we would identify as visible minority communities um, that are uh, largely very strong communities um, where you are able to reach a lot of people at the same time. And you know you're 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 nuts not to take advantage of finding those places because they do like having uh, input. Like I think there's a lot of audiences that have walked away from the political process. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people that have walked away from being involved in a leadership campaign and it does avail the opportunity for uh, you know, recent immigrants or w- women have been extremely powerful in leadership campaigns. And if I were Pierre Polyev, I, I would look at Pierre's audience and I'd say that really he's opened up two very distinct audiences that can come after him. Three, if you count Quebec, which I probably should have. But the the first one is is this broader ethnic community, which uh-huh. is huge, uh, where Patrick Brown, um, you know, it, it lives and where he kind of comes from, um, and, and it's huge in in the lower mainland of British Columbia. It's huge in Calgary. It's huge in Edmonton. Huge across the country. Big big opportunity. And the second is there's no women. Um, you know, like there are some women at the Pierre Polyev events, but they they tend to be dominated by relatively old white guys and then there's a there's a tremendous number of young uh white people as well but we've all made comments about the relative uh similarity in skin tone at the uh pierre polyev events um this is just the counter of that and so i think that if if patrick brown was successful in getting this group involved uh and he was successful in bringing in other groups that aren't being attracted to the pierre polyev campaign that i think that he does have a lane where he can at the least, to Corey's point, appear viable. And that's what today's today's job is. Let me let me talk to you about that, Corey. And I want to pick up on a comment that Carter made, which is this work can be done underground. And Carter, what I assume you mean by that is this work can be done silently, that the ground war and the ground game doesn't need a spotlight on it, that it can just happen, that the that that the the competition can be surprised on a week by week or month by month basis as to the new members that are joining and shit, holy shit, that's not us. Someone's doing that. And that's probably Patrick Brown. Uh, Corey, why do you think they came 
to extend on Carter's analogy above ground, why do you think they they implemented and strategically decided to insert a process story or or or, or, or kind of went along with it? Give me your, your take on that. Well, I think the main there's two reasons. One's offensive and one's defensive, right? Offensively, mm. they wanted to stop this narrative that uh, you know Pierre Polyev's already won. It's done. It's over. Uh, you know, move on to the next thing. <laughs> Because that would be uh, just demoralizing and, and attack the overall enthusiasm for the conservative contest overall, right? By making it seem not like a contest, which hurts all of the candidates who are not here. The second is defensive, though. It's because Patrick Brown has not necessarily proven himself to be a credible candidate. Now, he's working the angles. He's talking to a lot of people. There's a lot of podcasts going on right now. There's a lot of guests on those podcasts, on those mm-hmm. talking head shows on CBC and CTV saying, watch this guy. He's a sleeper candidate. He's out there hustling. He's selling memberships. Don't forget how he won the Ontario PC leadership in the first place. This is all now in the zeitgeist, and he's strengthening that. So he he wants people to think of himself as a credible candidate as well. So those are the the two big reasons to do it. But Carter really said the magic word uh, in the middle of his or at the end of his thing there when he talked about viability. Right. Mm. He wants to seem like a viable candidate. And and both that offensive and defensive approach speak to viability, the viability of both candidacy against Pierre Polyev generally and that of Patrick Brown specifically. And it's an important point because people do generally just discount non-viable alternatives. Whenever I do a poll in an election, you guys will know this because you worked with me. AVI, Mm -hmm. right? Accessibility, viability, intent. Intent. Yeah. Right. Accessibility. Who would you consider voting for? Viability, who do you think has a chance? Because that tells you where they're going to vote when push comes to shove, right? Because they they ultimately don't want to waste their vote. They don't want to waste their efforts if they're a volunteer. And then intent, uh, who are you planning to vote for? And intent is last because in some ways it's the least important. If you have accessibility and viability, you've got a campaign, right? Mm -hmm. Intent, if you were right up against the ceiling of accessibility, you might find yourself in an awful lot of trouble. Carter, can I, if, if, can yeah, I build on that? J- jump can in I here, jump in that? here. Yeah, yeah, do it, do <laughs> it. Because what I'd love to see with Pierre Polyev's numbers, right? I would love to see those who intend, who, who are aware of his name, but have no intention of voting for him. The, the ones that are kind of like unavailable to him. Because yeah. I suspect there are large pockets of people who are available to him. And we are seeing them come out. But we have not seen any numbers that say who's not available to him. And I suspect that he's got near 100% name recognition within the party itself. And, you know, some big chunk of that will never vote for him. And that's the group that you're really interested in seeing. Can they can they vote? Because it's that plus new that equals victory. Right. And so it's I often say to people, all campaigns are about math and no one wants to do the math on these things. But what Corey is describing can actually be written. No one wants to do the math. Can I can I stop you there? Yeah, no one ever does math. I, I I write a tremendous number of political strategies, right? And in every one of my political strategies, I write out the mathematical formulas that are going to dictate victory, depending on the structure of the event or, you know, the structure of the leadership or the structure of the electoral game. So if you've got 87 ridings in a province, that dictates a type of structural math. If you do a uh, popular vote mayoral, that dictates a strategic math. If you do a Different. popular vote um counselor with four strong candidates that dictates a type of math this math is all different and the math that that exists right now in the conservative party of canada is complex math right there are a lot of variables how many points how many ridings how many you know what happens in quebec what happens in atlantic canada what we're seeing from pierre looks 
unassailable, but it's not unassailable if you're looking at the math, you know, and, and I've looked at the math on these types of races. I mean, Justin Trudeau, you know, obviously cruised to victory when he ran in the leadership in what, 2015, 2016, but that easily could have been undone. 2014? Anyways, 2014. That, yeah, tw- that could have been undone. Um, with the right candidate, because he had a, he had a lot of reluctant supporters, people who were waiting to see if someone better came along, and then when there was no one better, he, they flipped to, to Justin Trudeau. It was <clears throat> the math is unbelievable, and it's so important. And and what de- Corey's described as kind of words, I would often describe as mathematical formula. Corey, jump on what you what you just heard. Twenty thirteen, actually. <laughs> Uh, yes. Carter. No, I think that's right. It's it's generally true. I you know, I'm not Carter giving the Carter secret sauce and how he runs through things. Maybe I believe it, maybe I don't. I've worked with you for a while. I think generally it's true, but I would say this. Um it it's not so much that people are afraid of the math and the way people don't like to do their taxes or open up Excel ever, right? It's that the math sometimes doesn't tell them the story they want to tell. And yeah. and yeah. so I think in general, politicians can move from mediocre to very good simply by following some very basic principles. And one of them is where are your votes coming from? Who is your accessible universe? Focus on that, ignore everything else. And uh, what Steven's talking about is trying to define that throughout campaign strategies, because it's been quite common uh, to run into campaign strategies where somebody says, well, we're just going to do this on the youth vote. And you you run the numbers and you go to Statistics Canada you get the riding profiles, you build it up from FSAs, maybe that's uh, the postal areas. And then you say, okay, but uh, you know, the demographic you think you're going to win with, I've just crunched the numbers and they represent 11% of the population of this area. So what's plan B? Uh, And a lot of people don't want to hear that because that's not the story they told themselves even when they got into politics, right? I'm going to win based on, you know, these people or those people or this coalition. And, um, you know, when you go in there and say that coalition's garbage, that's not enough. You've got to do more. That can be a bit damaging to the psyche of the candidate. So I'd say most candidates are afraid of that math. They're afraid of that storytelling because uh, it, it sometimes means they have to change their behavior and candidates don't like to change their behavior. Carter, I need to ask you, would you have gone, if you were on this Patrick Brown campaign, would you have gone, I apologize, above ground? Uh, would you have put this story out there? Was now in your mind, from what you observed, the right time for a process story for him? Absolutely. I think that the right time for a process story is every time. Um, you know, if I can't get regular is coverage. Is that oh, is yeah. that actually true? I don't think well, it's true. It's totally well, true. Let, let, let Carter make his point, and then And then I want I want Corey to, for, for you to refute it. Why is every time the right time for a process story? Because I can't get them to eat their vegetables. If I can't get them to eat their vegetables, then I have to give them candy. And so if I want my my candidate's name in the media, I have to generate process story because they're not ever going to eat their vegetables. So so give me an example. What's the this is punch one. What's the uppercut? What's the second punch for Patrick Brown? If you were advising him saying you got a great process story on a Monday, right after Easter, on the, you know, after a long weekend, uh, <laughs> podcasts like this one are talking about you. You can't get them to eat the Patrick Brown policy framework on opposing Bill 21. What's punch number two, Carter? What's the uppercut? Oh, I'd probably try something like um, we're going to do a uh, we're going to do seven twenty seven you know over a three day weekend we're going to do twenty seven uh, one hour uh, Zoom meetings with key with big groups like it's going to be you know twenty seven hundred people over the course of the of the of the, the three day weekend 
And we're going to have 2,700 people across the, the country on these things. We're not going to have to incur a nickel of expense. We're not going to have to fly around. We're not going to have to pay for halls. We're not going to have to do any of the things that Pierre is doing. And these are leaders. These aren't just the people who go to an event and hopefully buy membership. These are leaders who are able to buy multiple membership, you know, move memberships, sell memberships, get people to participate. That's the next story is how am I changing campaigning for leadership? You can see Pierre doing what he's doing, flying across the country, dropping in, seeing 6,000 people, 4,000 people, 2,000 people. How many of them are members? How many of them are really doing stuff? How many of them are selling memberships? Because that's what this is all about. And Patrick Brown's going to see 2,700 people in 27 meetings across the three-day thing. He's not even going to be able to speak by the end of it. And if you want to sit through all 27 meetings, you're welcome. So this it's is his the own other thing. lane. It's a different type of virality that you're saying. Or rather than the one jump in 6,000, boom, let's move on. This is a different type of intimacy, a different type of virality, and a different type of community connection that you would try to frame Patrick Brown's, I'll go back to the term both of you using, uh, viable candidacy in. Right. I mean, no, no. I mean, look at how many, like, it doesn't, how many of these things exist, right? All these different communities across the country. This is just one weekend. You should see us next weekend. We're doing 30 of these things next week, right? This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. It's working for us in a totally different way. So now that you've done this, we're doing it differently. Now you got to prove it again, prove it again, prove it again. Corey, I'm going to ask you the, the, yeah. the, 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 this, I react to this and then I'll go to your theory on process stories. When is a good time, but react to what you heard from Carter first. Well, that's fine, but that wasn't the answer to your question. Your question was, should you always do process stories? And the answer is fuck no. No, my question you, was, no. what would you do next? My question was, what would you do next process. after this? You're never uh, going to get a vegetable story. You're always going to have to do candy. I, I, but respond to the fundamental question here, which is uh, answer it. When's the right time to do a process story, Corey? Well, when there's yeah, nothing the else time. going on, as long as it reinforces your ballot box question. So like this, the process stories can be massive distractions. First of all, they mm. tend to elevate the people behind the scenes on the campaign, and that's fine. But then you've got to deal with those egos and make sure that they're all understanding what the name of the game what is. What egos? <laughs> You're like a walking why process stories are dangerous, Stephen. <laughs> this, is, this is actually true. Yeah. <laughs> although, although rarely, I have to say, they've rarely been about you. Carter. They're never about me. Well, they're about me afterwards. Yeah. You know, like when, <laughs> yeah. I get, when I get yeah, fired yeah. or something like that. But that's a different thing. That's a different thing. The, most of the time, we, we focus the process story on something that, you know, to Corey's point, that we feel gives us viability. So with Nenshi, we talked all the way through about how we were campaigning differently. And, you know, we, we were speaking to people where they lived and bullshit like that. Frankly, totally hyped it up. Not really a true story, but you have to tell the story that people want to hear. And that was the story that people wanted to hear. I'm not saying we didn't do communication stories. We did a ton of policy stuff, but no one covered it. So no, every week. No, 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 no. But, but your Corey, overall in. narrative is not necessarily process stories. Again, this maybe goes back to us having a slightly different definition of process stories. Maybe mine's too narrow for you, but but yours the, is very much just to remind the audience really about a bit like of the how strategy things back work room, behind the scenes, uh, how, how the things are, how is momentum made. is being built, exactly yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, and uh, with Nenshi, it was really about doing politics differently. That was the reinforcing of the key message of the campaign. So, in a funny way, on that very specific campaign, yeah, of course, process stories have a, a supersized place because you are talking about doing politics differently. That is Gondek, your that is your all value process prop. stories. You know, Gondek was all process stories. 
uh redford we did all process stories i think i'm just realizing that you you do process stories this is this is the yeah, thing. this, is, this is what i do i mean because i can't get them to eat their vegetables but the ballot but like, box if you question had a big like enough... what you've talked about is three campaigns where you tied the ballot box question to process right well when have, uh, when have you ever tied every the campaign ballot box question like to a policy Oh, yeah, been a million trade? times. 1983, like 1987? Just, like, you were terrible at this. Making up years. 88. Yeah, just, 88. <laughs> 88? Like, what the fuck? You know, like, I, I'm having trouble with it years today because I'm old. You know, yeah. you guys have to understand that. But when is it not a process question? <laughs> <laughs> Thank oh, you. God. By the way, this is the first time on the main feed. Uh, we we got a soundboard now, people. We got, yeah, we got this is this the first time on the main feed? Yeah, this is yeah. good. Um, These poor people. Corey, hold on. I finish your thought here. Yeah. So the egos in the back room that you have to deal yeah. with, um, the, the, the reigning in of that. Uh, but give me your sort of crystallization of when's the right time for a processor. What I heard so far is when there's nothing really going on and it's still tied to the ballot box question. Do you want to add more to that? Yeah, sure. You know what? In, in a funny way, I'll hearken you back to a campaign that we both we're involved in on different sides in 2012 here. Think about the 28-day campaign. Don't think about the specifics. Think about every day how the newspaper had that section, the Edmonton Journal, where it was, um, okay, we're going to cover Alison Redford here, and we're going to cover Danielle Smith here, Raj Sherman here, and Brian Mason here, right? They're not doing process stories during a campaign like that. They, They are doing the policy announcements as they're being spun out throughout the campaign. And everybody is trying to make those individual announcements ladder up into a story, into a narrative. Now, you have taken some process stories on campaigns you've worked on to build your narrative, to talk about politics Mm -hmm. being different as the cause. But most elections are not actually like that. Most elections are about taking a bunch of discrete policy announcements and saying something bigger with it. And that's true of process stories, true, or two, to get us back on track here. So when is the right time to do a process story? When that process story reinforces the narrative of your campaign. There are elements of viability that are somewhat separate sometimes, but in a leadership campaign, it gets a little bit money. There's no question about but, that. But isn't this, it, it, I mean, you're, 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 you're making this like, if, you, if you're crafting a campaign story, you're always, you should always be crafting it to your ballot box question, right? Um everything you're doing is should be driving your narrative of that particular story element that particular story arc. And there are millions of process stories that can fit into your various pro, you know, your various arcs. It looks like what Patrick Brown is saying is that this conservative party needs to be bigger than, than what, you know, I mean, if you're reading the article, it's not just, I'm talking to mm-hmm. visible minorities. It's, it's, you know, at stake is the brand of conservatism that we're after right, here. Of course. And and the diversity brings us a brand of conservatism that is different. I mean, you can still push that primary message through all of the different all of the different process stories that are available to you. I mean, you're 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 pretending like I'm going after a process story that doesn't have relevance to the narrative. But I think you can craft most process stories to have relevance to the narrative. Maybe you can. Most people do not, is my point. Most process stories go off the rails and they become about creating heroes within the campaign. Uh, and that's not useful for ballot questions. Nine heroes times within out of ten. The, yeah, heroes within the campaign only work at the end afterwards when you've well, won. They help when you, you get work actually, afterwards, yeah. Yeah, when you are in <laughs> fact a, when you are in fact a hero. Uh, Carter, hold on. I, I've, got, I've got a question for you. Talk to me about process stories when you're down, when it's clear, like this one. I think this is fascinating for to me because... 
the narrative is that pure polygraph is a runaway train. Uh, talk to me about how you implant these from a position of strength versus weakness. How do you paper over weakness? You also are, to a previous conversation we had a couple of weeks ago, are leaving it. You don't get to write this story, right? There's a, there's a sense of like intermediate, like someone's writing this story. They will cover what they want. This one's pretty positive for Patrick Brown, right? Especially with some of the headlines that we're seeing emerge out of it. But talk to me about the risk of process stories. Have you gotten burnt by them in the past? I suspect you have. You've invited someone in and they've said this campaign is actually not humming. There's nothing here. I, I'm, I'm making shit up. But like, tell me about the risk and then oh, no. how you calculate that from position of weakness. No, we've had we've had many process stories kind of go off the rails. You know, I mean, again, not to, to, to beat the dead horse of the Ninja campaign, but every time we did our process story about how important social media was, Dwayne Bratt would get quoted in the same story saying that social media wasn't that important. And we'd be like fuck you know like we just we just spent all that time getting a process story in and it's kind of undone by one quote from a political scientist um but what we came to realize is that our message still got out and people you know tend to write off whatever political scientists say um the holy trinity of political incompetence you know <laughs> thank you Gordon. political Merlin's. scientists pollsters and pundits I mean, I mean, we are one of we those are three. we are one of those three. No, we are strategists. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Carter. Thank you for creating a new category. We try and stay away from punditry. We Wait, go talk, with talk to me about risks. Talk to me about risks because you've talked about it a bit in your answer. Talk to me about the risk uh, assessments for uh, process stories. Well, I mean, those are basically them that they don't tell the story that you want to tell. They become a distraction. They just at. Maybe if you're off message in a process story, at best, you are cluttering up the landscape. And if you're asking somebody to remember one thing about you, now the odds are less that it's the one thing you need them to remember. But at worst, they can actually cut against you. There can be a situation where all of a sudden you are telling a story that undercuts your viability, undercuts your brand. Mm. Imagine a parallel universe where Patrick Brown did a process story where he said, yeah, yeah, you should come see how I'm running my campaign. Follow me around for a day. And nobody's fucking there. Everybody that the reporter talks to afterwards says, I mean, I wanted to come see him and, you know, hear him out because I have some friends who think highly of him. But I know I'm obviously going to vote for Pierre Poiliev, right? Like, yeah, yeah. That, Shit that's, like that. That's not what happened. And obviously, they've done a pretty good job of managing their process stories as this campaign's gone on. Uh, really quite impressive, I think the three of us would have to say. Yeah. But uh, there is always the risk that when you make it about the nuts and bolts, somebody makes it about the nuts and bolts. And at the end of the day, you are trying to tell a story and the reporter is trying to tell a story, you might not be telling the same story. Corey, talk to me about what story you would tell if you are Patrick Brown going forward. You have this, how do you, to Carter's 2,700 people in 27 days, what is your strategy for building continued momentum here? Whether it is for outright viability for the membership or for the confidence boost that your supporters, volunteers, donors need to keep the, the, the machine going. Well, that depends on where he actually is, right? Yeah. So yeah, we're fair. looking from the outside and we're trying to assess and read the tea leaves. There's a couple of things that make me think Patrick Brown is more real than uh, than not. Mm. One of them is the the fact that the Polyev campaign went after them on the prepaid debit cards. It right? seemed like that. Did they actually explicitly say it was a Brown campaign that they were after? On that regard, I suspect it was too, but yeah, that's those a good are no question. Longer. I just made the assumption just based so did on I. That some was of the, the exact same assumption I made that it was reporting. Yeah, it, yeah maybe I was... shouldn't, but uh, great point. Uh, maybe undercuts one of the points I was going to make. The other thing, though, is that it um, it's really uh, 
you know, you you are getting this volume of process stories. You are getting the mm. tall foreheads in the conservative party saying, watch Patrick Brown. And that's tough to create out of literally nothing. It's not that hard to make out of something. It's tough to make out of nothing. Mm. And so it, I suspect that there is something to his campaign, whether it's enough. That's really quite hard to say from the outside, but assume that it is assume that he's actually selling a, a significant number of memberships, his deeper connections, those community connections are working. He'll talk to, uh, you know, leaders in various communities who will then in turn go out, and hustle and sell 10, 100 memberships uh, a piece for him. Well, then I think what you want to do next is you've got to take it from the back rooms to the front rooms and you've got to make that pivot at a certain point, just as Nancy did, not to keep going back to him, just as so many other candidates do and say, now look at all of these people behind me. Now let's have a battle for the soul of this party. Right? Let's have mm. it out in the open. Let's have it during these debates. And uh, let's have it in a way where it's clearly, uh, you know, Patrick and Pierre fighting, Mayor Brown, I guess, <laughs> right? Uh, rather than, and who's he, Sheree, off to the sides. I mean, that's that's what you want to construct at a certain point. But if you're not there, then you've got you've to run this story a little bit longer. You've got to move this narrative a little bit further. Carter, Pierre Polyev has chosen virality and as- aggressive organizing. Seems like Patrick Brown has chosen the network effect, building on community groups, decentralized campaigning. What the hell is Jean Charest's strategy? We've said that each of them should pick their own lane, that they shouldn't compete in each other's, that if you see Pierre Polyevra organizing the way he has, you're best not try to compete with massive rallies. That's going to be a losing uh, proposition for you. Where the hell is Jean Charest in terms of, uh, and decipher it for me, what is his strategy here that you see? And is it time that he needs a process story about what's going on underneath the hood of that arguably geriatric campaign? Well, I think that his strategy needs to be to be second, right? And so the math on it basically works that uh, if the you know if if you Pierre's at more, more than forty three per, percent of the of the points prior to you know on the first ballot, then the the chances of of as things kind of develop because it's it's a Prefer- preferential ballot, right? So you choose your different people. And the way that preferential ballots tend to work is that people who have chosen, who haven't chosen the the obvious front runner are never going to choose the obvious front runner. Yep, yep, that's yep, the yep, psychology yep. of it. And that's what we've been basing a lot of. Now, obviously that doesn't hold a hundred percent because, you know, first of all, a lot of people don't choose a second person. So those numbers, they creep up. So 43% is the math that I tend to use. Um, so there is a point where Sheree or Brown need to be second. And that point is probably 30%. So someone needs to come in with 30% of the vote. And what we've seen from Sheree is he's saying, okay, 30% of the vote is essentially Quebec and Atlantic Canada. I'm going to go out and I'm going to dominate in those areas. I will pick up the votes that I can pick up across the rest of the country. And then Patrick Brown should also have his own 30% strategy. Lower mainland of British Columbia, Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, major centers with large visible minority populations where there's multiple ridings and he can able and he's able to to push a number of votes out. That coupled with the the 905 and the and the Toronto region where Pierre's not going to do well gives um, a pretty I mean, maybe that's another place where Chiray can pick up is is in the actual Toronto area. But bottom line, those are all votes available that could get them to the 30% mark. And as long as Pierre is under under forty three or under forty something, then um, it's entirely possible that those two together 
and it has to be those two because it's not going to be less less than Lewis, yeah. right? Um, those two together might be able to stop, you know, to stop Pierre. Corey, he wanted to jump in here. Your last point is what I wanted to go to and then jump off of. So uh, interestingly, I think that both Sheree and Brown are moving towards this battle for the soul of the party language, yeah. right? Yeah. Which seems stolen from Joe Biden, by the way, and, and the 2020 election. A great debt owed to it, I think, in that context. Uh, but he won, so why the hell not? Um, but if it is truly a battle for the soul of the party, be aware that those battle lines don't necessarily put the front runner alone. And that's, mm. that's, I think, a bit of a danger, but that's a reality that they have to contend with. So I'm not sure 43% is the number that you shoot for if you know Lewis might get 15%, for example. So if Leslie Lewis is at 15%, Pierre Polyev is at 38%, that's probably the game. Game over. Yeah. And if, if, there if will Leslie be people Lewis who, is at 15%, it's going to be the, the crazy right wingers for sure. Well, but you know, where did she come in before? Higher than that. She got like the most votes, I think. Uh, just the way that they distributed with points it didn't work out that well for yeah uh, at least on one of the rounds but look i think um i think this is the risk right um and it's it's one of those strange campaigns where it's not head to head and there are a lot of players around and it's you know it's not two teams it's four teams it's five teams and so they've got to be mindful about the divides that they are trying to create and um there's risk. There's risk with that campaign. That campaign only works if you think Brown plus Sheree equals greater than 50%. If you don't, you might need to go a different route to just keep everybody on one side and Polyev on the, on the, you know, the first side. Carter, you know, we've already done what some 40 minutes on, uh, on uh, Patrick Brown. I mean, less than that because we, we actually, uh, of course had you uh, have an elongated They're version so of our promo. Uh, Thank you so much. Tickets. Yeah, very yeah. tight, very crisp. Uh, the strategist.ca <laughs> for those tickets. Listen, Carter, uh, Carter, listen. People listen. have already bought tickets. How do you know that? Are you not paying attention? Well, I was the person who bought them. Okay, well, thank you, Carter. Well, that's very good. Yeah. Hey, Carter, right. talk to me about something that I find fascinating, which is the limits of the network effect. I'm going to zoom out here because there are some limits here around suggesting that it's just as simple as getting 200 people in a room asking each of those 200 people to sell 50 memberships and you rinse and repeat 27 times to use the number you put out there. And that's the ball game. You can win. Talk to me about how what's required to, to ensure that that does happen. And there are some, and the reason I put it out there, there are some, I'd say, stereotypical assumptions, especially related to cultural communities around, if you just hit that one person, trust me, they'll bring <laughs> everyone else on board. How many times have you heard that shit? So when I say limits of the network effect, talk to me about limits of the, the network effect from an organizing perspective, but also from your experience as a, as a campaigner and what you need to do to ensure that if that is indeed your strategy, decentralized, have people fan out and organize, that you're not caught up in, uh, in, in some mirage of, uh, of, of support that you, that you may not ultimately have. Yeah, there is no set it and forget it in a leadership. Right, the same way that there's no set it and forget it in a uh, in a in a nomination battle, um, you have to set metrics every day, and you yeah. have to make sure that you are working your networks every day. And so it's it's essentially a pyramid scheme, right? Every person in the pyramid scheme needs to be working their way down the pyramid to make sure that everybody multi layer marketing guys <laughs> like this is how it all works. And Corey, so the, Corey was part of Avon, so he knows what's going on. He knows uh, what's going on. <laughs> sure, I've still got his Avon products. And I got to tell got, you, the lipstick I've got a garage makes me full pop. of them. <laughs> I've um, got a garage uh, full of them. So. There you go. So here's the thing. We're going to, you know, the, every single day, your top people need to be calling your next level. 
and your next level has to call the next level. And everybody, oh, they get so tired. They don't want to make the calls anymore. It's just, you know, but you have to make the calls. Every single day in a leadership, you have to make the calls. You have to collect the data. You have to make sure that everything is flowing back, that all the data portals are working, right? So that, the, you know, because it's one thing to sell a membership, but if you sell a membership and the main campaign doesn't get the data, then that member doesn't really exist to you, right? You don't have the information to get that member out to vote because it's a two-step process. Sell the membership, get them out to vote. So you have to have all the information flowing. So, you know, you set up all of these different pyramids that are going to be working in different communities. And I don't care if you're working the Calgary hockey community or you're working the, you know, the, the, the Muslim community in Southern Ontario. Whatever community you're working requires the same emphasis and, and, and attention. Um, you know, they need speeches. They need to have, you know, we, we have to have these 15 people at a uh, meet and greet. They have to meet the candidate. If they don't meet the candidate, they are not going to sell memberships and they will sell memberships. Okay. How many of those 15 people? And this basically falls into what I call the one third, one third, one third rule. So one third of the people that you sign up to sell memberships will do everything you ask them to do and more. They are fantastic. Mm. Then one third, something will have happened to them, but they're not able to quite get it done now, but they're going to try and get it done soon. And then one third, you just never hear from. So you're really relying on that top third to do so much work. And you're trying to convert the other two thirds into the top third. So you're making phone calls constantly. I mean, even, even in the mayoralty race. I mean, I think I, you know, I talked about how I had all the na- lists of names on the wall of all the different people. I was working in my pyramid. I was working key people. I was pushing them to make, make their calls to their key people. And they've got at least a phone call from me every week. Boom. What's going on in a leadership? It even needs to be more regular. Corey, any comments on, on limitations or, or um, <coughs> any, any points of strategy related to relational or decentralized organizing like we've been talking about here? It's so funny. I mean, we rebrand these things every decade, but this yeah. is how politics has been done forever. The nature of community is changing. And mm-hmm. there are different tools that allow us to access online communities that you have a different level of intensity with or not, right? Uh, and different levels of participation. And so you just got to be live to them. You've got to know what you can actually get out of them. Carter's rule, one third, one third, one third. And it's an interesting rule. It won't hold for every community, and so you've just got to you've just got to know your community. And part of being a good politician with a broad base of support is having support from multiple communities, uh, and knowing how each of those communities will react to what you're doing, and holding together that winning coalition. That's been true since Athenian democracy, right? This this has been true as long as people have been going out and begging for votes. So uh, it's just modern times, different tools, but the rules are the same. The constituency is too big for you to know everybody. You've got to have lieutenants. Some lieutenants are more useful than other lieutenants. What I think is interesting about the Brown campaign versus the Polyev campaign as we talk this out is one is all about uh, kind of social networks in the Mm -hmm. broadly understood sense, like the web sense, going out there, getting content that goes viral, having a million people and knowing, paying a big numbers game, right? Down the funnel. He's sure as fuck not getting a third of the people watching his instagram videos through but he's getting a smaller percent of a bigger group and brown is saying i want a a bigger percent of a smaller group and how these two strategies collide will tell us a lot about the state of politics that'll be fascinating you know it's very rare so what i'm hearing you guys is is keep the organizing going it's very rare that you can just you know from from your 
bully pulpit just repeat something over and over and have that brand penetrate it's it's very rare that that's able to happen only we've been maybe uh, able to make that happen with our flair airlines content just really ensuring that every time we mention it it comes back to us it uh, really ensures it's in the psyche um, well, in fairness, Carter, it's not going anywhere else. It's not going. Thank, thank you, Carter. Thank you for stepping <laughs> oh, good. on the eventual very joke nice. that I was about to make. Thank you, Carter. I appreciate oh, that. Sorry. Let's move it on to our next segment. Our next segment. You were being very <laughs> slow on your joke, so I jumped no, in I was, and took I was, the punchline. It's called a buildup. Have you heard of a buildup before, Carter? You may have heard <laughs> yeah, of it from I the first two minutes. I tried it when I was first two minutes of the show. You may have heard of it. It's the Maharaja banquet hall. People need to know it's it's a banquet facility. They'll be made nice for them. Okay, but they're not getting food, right? Like we need to clarify. Okay. Now bring your bring your own food, okay? I don't yeah. know if you can bring your own food. Who the you fuck can't knows? Bring your own the strategist.ca. Let's move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, the sixth wave, sixth sense. Guys, we are in the sixth wave of COVID, and it's almost like it doesn't matter, at least in certain <sighs> places. And I want to revisit yeah. our our little one sheet. You guys remember this episode? We did it in, in yep. mid-January, our one pager for how to adapt. And adopt to a change in COVID reality. We had six points we kind of put on there. The first one was uh, for politicians to follow. If you haven't listened to that episode, I believe mid-January, we put out a guide for here's what politicians need to look at as key principles as related to how to manage COVID going forward. Number one, don't go too far off the center path. Always acknowledge where that center is. Uh, you know, it's always going to be shifting. It's clear right now that that center path of uh, where people's appetite and comfort is has clearly shifted. Number two, don't turn off your brain. Uh, that these are, are are not just autopilot decisions you make. Number three, stop focusing on case counts. That's not the metric you need to focus on. I think as a society and culturally, we've maybe moved on beyond that. Although there is a, a few groups and a few organizations, political and otherwise, that are still using that as a key metric. Number four, focus on downside risk. Understand that there's downside risk to everything that you do. Number five, it's not all about COVID. Address your coalition. So things like the economy, things like other issues. When we recorded in January, it was, you know, slow bird to try to get to some other topics. But those are all part of what people are considering. And number five, this almost seems a little, uh, number six, I should say, don't indulge the unvaccinated. Understand that we live together now, that it is our, uh, our, our they, they are our neighbors, our friends, our family, but don't indulge them so aggressively um as to let them dictate where you go i wanted to throw that out there and you might tell me that this segment only needs two minutes because it might just be zane these are still the same six rules for the sixth wave that everything is the same let's move on but i also want to hear from you to say are there any tweaks you'd make based on the reality you see today based on the fact that certain cities the one perhaps that we live in it seems like life has moved on other cities in our country and if not the world um, now, conversation of reintroducing masking, shutdowns and lockdowns are happening in other parts of the world right now. So, I want to kind of reintroduce this one pager and see, hey, yeah. what are you, what are you keeping, what are you tweaking? Corey, let me start with you. Let me end with that simple frame. What are you keeping? What are you tweaking? Yeah, as, as you're reading through the list, there's not a lot I disagree with at this point, but they all hit a little bit different now they that do, we're going into they? the sixth yeah. wave. Yeah, like don't turn off your brain remains good advice. Uh, but at the time it was meant to be don't autopilot on what was working before. Correct. That remains true, like, I, but now almost in the opposite direction. So yeah, we had a lighter go with Omicron than some feared. It wasn't as bad as mm -hmm. the Delta wave. Um, but that doesn't mean that every future wave is 
destined to be less and less, right? And so don't turn off your brain. Continue to watch the numbers. Continue to look at the uh, wastewater. Uh, use the data points available and make public health decisions based on them. So that, like I said, hits different, but I think it's still good advice, <laughs> not just for COVID, let's face it, across yeah, the board. Yeah. Um, stop focusing on case counts. It's a little different now that we've stopped focusing on case counts, but I think it's still right. Uh, we've got to be looking uh, a little bit broader on that because a the case count numbers are garbage because they they mean nothing when nobody's able to report them yeah and b um, really because we are now so largely vaccinated even a province like Alberta where we we lag the rest of the country we're we're better than a ton of jurisdictions uh, if you if you cast more globally um, and, and so it's different right the the severe outcomes are more what we've got to worry about focusing on downside risk remains the advice but it's the downside risk has changed as public appetite has changed as public attitude has changed your downside risk of just saying yolo or fuck it and running forward into the sixth wave as a government is much lower mm. than it was with the more keyed up uh general public and finally don't indulge the coalition uh, but remember you got to live in the same house with them or some version of that that yeah, last yeah. rule for sure but but just be aware that that's maybe not the defining relationship anymore. You still need to think about the fact that you can't antagonize or alienate huge swaths of the population. But I'm not really sure that it breaks so cleanly on pro-action and con-action anymore. What, do, what again, do you mean by that? Well, because it's, again, it's tied to all of the the decline and concern that's existing yeah. more broadly. I see what you're saying. So um, the, the things that you you had like such a clear divide before, right? Like you were on this side or you were on this side. Now I think there's an awful lot of people saying, I don't know, isn't it kind of over? I mean, I had COVID. It wasn't so bad. My neighbors had it again. I mean, would I even know? It's And so the coalition conversation is just different. And, and I think that point remains in some ways the most important, but it's the one that most needs to be looked at and redone in the context of this current wave of COVID. Carter? Well, from what you heard in terms of Corey's explanation, from what you heard in terms of what I put on the board, the six rules you guys gave to me in mid-January, what are you keeping? What are you tweaking, Carter? Well, I think that the center path is still wise. I, I feel like we've left the center path a little bit and we've moved a little bit towards no path. Um, you know, Have the we government... left the center path or do you think the center path has just <clears throat> kind of changed uh, to now being living with it? Yeah, and to be well, clear, think... when we say center, we mean where the bulk of Canadians yeah, are, yeah. right? Yeah, but I think that the challenge is that um, Canadians may have moved, but the, the 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 virus hasn't moved all that far. You know, like the, the challenge is that you're not managing your downside risk anymore. You know, when you add those two pieces back together, you know, the downside risk, uh, you know, wasn't that long ago that one or two deaths a day were really getting a lot of attention. We're getting five, six deaths a day in Alberta, and there is no attention paid. Yeah. Um. And I guess it's okay, I guess. You know, like we didn't we don't pay attention to to cancer deaths. We don't track cancer deaths, we don't track flu deaths every day, you know, like we don't put it in the newspaper. Um, you know, we just we have an obituary section and you go through the obituaries and you see, you know, how many people were, you know, well, we don't even have newspapers anymore, but how many people were taken out by through a fight of cancer, right? Like all of these things are real, but I'm I'm afraid that we aren't the least bit prepared for a you know a variant that is worse right we are only prepared for a variant that is um you know like omicron right or 
Omicron, this one's Omicron B and it's supposed to be less challenging. Well, that's great. This is get if if this continues to move like the the flu, then everything is fine. Um, but it doesn't necessarily always just move in a straight line. So that is that is that is where I'm afraid that we're making assumptions right now. Well, this is where we have the opportunity to say, or is there another rule? Is there another philosophy or principle you want to throw on the list? Carter, you want I, to jump I in? I just let- want to reemphasize them. I want to focus on the downside risk more. But I'm also keenly aware that it's not about the case counts all the time. And it's not about, you know, it's not all about COVID. I want to resume my work. I'd like to see people. We had a great live event. We wouldn't have been able to have that live event last year. That was fun. It was fun for us. It was fun for the audience. We were all in the room together. And we, you know, you know, it's it, we all could get COVID. But we chose to do it because it was something that we valued. And I know that a few people bought tickets and didn't come. I know that a few people got nervous with the case counts rising. And I don't want to I don't want to scare anybody. I don't want anybody to be scared. Um, but I also don't want people to just be, you know, just so accepting of this that we just ignore the fact that at some point it could get really bad again. Corey, is there any rule that you're adding to the mix right now? Carter's underlined a few, but is there any new rule or statement that you would in an april environment versus a january environment want to make sure sticks out to a politician who's who's, uh making decisions on this file yeah i'm getting a big ass yellow highlighter and i'm streaking it over and over again don't turn off your brain steven's point is is the point here and i think that advice becomes more important the more we become just used to it and we can reflexively ignore things that shouldn't be ignored. I mean, when you were talking about, yeah, we don't report flu deaths, we don't report cancer deaths. I I don't know. I mean, on the flu one, maybe we should, you know, yeah, flus are contagious. We should probably have a sense of how dangerous things are out there. But I, you're really, really right about the fact that we are just not psychologically prepared for a worse variant, either the mm. leadership or the general public. I don't know what would happen if we had a worse variant all of a sudden hit our shores with a fatality rate that was closer to deltas that none of us were particularly well protected against from vaccination. I truly think that we would just, we would wait until the hospitals were in absolute crisis before we do anything at this point. I I think people have just sort of, they've, they've turned off their ears. They don't want to hear it. It's not happening right now, but we've got to be vigilant for it. We've, we've got to be mindful of it. And I think, um, you know, the lesson of, the, I think, the Spanish flu is that that last wave is the worst one because everyone's ready to move on. Mm. Virus doesn't give a shit if we're bored with it. Just yeah. it does not. And so, Carter, is there any specific advice you want to close this out with with that particular frame in mind around a, a, a variant that could be worse um, going forward? Don't overreact to the variants that aren't bad. Because it will undermine the the reaction that's required to the variant that may be bad. Not bad. I like that, Carter. We'll leave that segment there. Move it on to our final segment, our over, under, and our lightning that's round. It? Stephen Carter. That's it. Final? That's it. That's it. That's great. it. Carter, have we you should do at shorter segments, Corey. We did a good job on that one. <laughs> you guys literally had to revise, and you spend like 15 minutes telling me nothing changed. Um, that's what I got out of it, and I'm sure that's what the listeners got out of it. This yeah, is that valuable it. free Sunday slash Monday slash whenever you want to record We've content. We've given a lot of information today. They've learned I feel a lot. like it's. I feel like they've learned a lot, Carter. Yeah. We do this for you. Overrated or underrated? The Kenny government released new insurance data this past Friday that indicated more than a billion dollars in profit for the insurance industry. There's a lot of 
hoopla about this. I want to discuss it a bit more, but let's just get your initial take. Overrated or underrated, the insurance industry making more than a billion dollars in profit. The it's overrated. The the insurance industry making a billion dollars in profit means in 2020, nothing. I should say. Sorry, yeah. just yeah. means means nothing to me. What does mean something to me is the way that my individual insurance rates went up when the UCP conservatives uh, took off the the cap, right? I mean, every every conservative bitched and moaned about how expensive the carbon tax was, and then their insurance rates went up more than they paid in carbon taxes. You know, their their, their cost of living that under the UCP government has skyrocketed. Um, in part because of inflation, in part because of the the end of of COVID, but in part because they let it skyrocket because things that we didn't notice, like our electricity rates, like our um, natural gas rates, like our insurance rates, those things that we didn't notice, um, that we didn't blame the government for, all went up and we gave the government a free pass. Um, so it, the billion dollars is overrated. No one understands what that means. Underrated the amount of extra money that we're paying as individuals, as families, um, that adds up and that is noticeable. Corey, overrated, underrated the uh, the billion dollars in, in profit <laughs> for the insurance industry in 2020 uh, in the report that released well, that was released by the UCP on Friday. So I think this is underrated. It's validating of what many of us have seen with our insurance rates over the past bit. I'll tell you, uh, in laws of mine that are not particularly political, and if they do have political views, they tend to be more center-right or further-right. They talked about their bills going up. They were mad about insurance rates yeah. increasing. This is something people notice because you're, it, it, the funny thing is so many things in our life when we get inflationary moments, it's just it, it passes so slowly or it passes in a way without ceremony. You go to the grocery store and you're like, oh, that's funny. Rice Krispies are more expensive than they were last time. Oh, that's mm. annoying. The price of milk has gone up. Um, insurance they are legally required to send you a big bolded notice a month before it comes up saying by the way next year it's going up a lot i have fun and yeah, yeah. a big price b big ceremony around delivering you that price at least relative to most other purchases that we do in our life so it's something that people notice and this validates that i i mean at a certain point and riffing on what steven said here the ad almost writes itself for the ndp i'm imagining a social board affordability under the UCP for the average Alberta family 2019 to present, just stacking all of these costs, right? So home and auto insurance rates increase, ping, whatever that is, elimination of electricity rate cap, ping, whatever that is. Uh, they'll throw in de-indexing of personal income tax rates because they love that for some fucking reason. For I don't some know reason, why. Yeah. But you know, there's more money. And then reduction of tax rate on large businesses, zero, did nothing for you. So this is their priorities. They made life more expensive for you and less expensive for their crony buddies. And, and, you know, this this ad does write itself. And there's a reason why the government dropped it on a Thursday before a four day long weekend. Mm, they right, know it's bad Thursday. for them. They know yeah. it's really bad for Carter, them. Carter, jump in. Hey, you what, something they're, they're not going to write that fucking ad. I'll bet you $100 right now. It <laughs> writes itself. There's no way they write that ad. Uh, Corey, I'm going to stick with you for our next one. Are you in or out on the Kenny strategy to invite and to have Senator Joe Manchin visit Alberta as, uh, as of course, it's part of the U.S.'s scramble to find ways to e ease uh, oil oil supply. Uh, what do you think of that? Are you in or out of the strategy from what you saw of Manchin coming to Alberta? I'm so fucking out. I, I can't, like, I don't know. Who is this for, right? I, I, who is this for? We, I mean, talk about Joe who. Like, Joe Manchin <laughs> comes to Canada and we're all supposed to be like, 
ooh, Joe wants ROL. Who the fuck is he? Why does he matter? Do we care? I, I'm further out than Corey. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Carter. <laughs> Carter, I, I want to ask you another one. In or out, I'm going to stick with you on this one. Elon Musk's bid to take over Twitter at the live show, we were talking about him wanting to take a piece. He'd blown through SEC guidelines, the board seat. Board seat was gone. Now we're in in the in the depths of him trying to acquire it, take it private. The poison pill strategy from the Twitter uh, group right now. In or out on the Elon Musk acquisition, Carter? I'm or the attempted for, acquisition. I'm out for two reasons. Reason number one is I don't think it's serious, right? I think that the acquisition strategy is based on I fucked up with the SEC. So if I move to a full-scale acquisition, I can maybe get away with some of the stuff that I was doing that I shouldn't have been doing. I should have been reporting earlier. So number one, I'm out for that reason. Number two, I'm out because this idea that free speech, un- un- unregulated free speech is a good idea uh, with amplification is just nuts. If you want to stand in front of your, in, in your living room of your house and speak to your friends about uh, your crazy ideas, go for it. No one nowhere should be interacting with that. But if you want to stand, uh, if you want to put your ideas in the newspaper, if you want to put your ideas on Facebook, if you want to put your, in anything that amplifies your story, then you need to be, then, then you have to have some sort of regulation. It's not about the speech. It's not about the speech. Everybody will allow your speech. It's about the amplification of your speech. When we amplify your speech, that's when things get bad. And that's when we have to put, you know, some sort of curtailment on unmitigated free speech. And Elon Musk understands a lot of things. He does not understand that. Corey, are you in or out on the attempted acquisition by Elon Musk of the entire of the entire operation that was that is Twitter? Uh, I, I mean, I'm out and it's pretty clear the market is out, too. Uh, the, the price went down the day after Elon Musk announced what he was willing to buy it for, which is not a strong indicator that they think that this deal is going to come to fruition, because if they did, that's just leaving money on the table. He's offered to purchase every share for more than what you can purchase shares for on the open market. So if you think it's going to happen, this, the price of the shares generally goes up and it goes up relative to the probability of the deal happening. Right. So. Um, it's, it's not going to happen. It's crazy rodeo clown theatrics, whatever. It's absolutely, uh, a bit of a distraction. It is tied to a issue that's worth unpacking longer form, which is social media more generally. And where to from here? Uh, there was a couple of interesting articles over the weekend, uh, but uh, no time, no time, Zane, because we're already we, in the we should, round. We should do a special, actually, the Height article, which I know, Carter, you're a big Jonathan Height fan. The Height fan. article was Very great. Uh, the Height article takes about an hour to read. I yeah, think Carter about, takes about two hours to read. Um, there's I big words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> but Jonathan Height article, we should talk about it. Maybe we even do a Patreon special. Who, who the hell knows? We can do anything. We can do anything. The world, the world yeah. is our oyster. The world yeah. is our oyster. Uh, Corey, I'm going to stick with you. Overrated or underrated as we finish off the show? Process stories. Overrated <laughs> or underrated in your mind? We spent a lot of time talking about them and in relationship to Patrick Brown and his campaign. Overrated or underrated? Zane, they're overrated. don't have our own soundboard we, well, we, we, we only paid for one soundboard we only paid for one yeah we only paid we're for not gonna pay for more carter <laughs> overrated underrated process stories well i'm a little disappointed he didn't take his glasses off and do the whole 
Uh, I my, I yeah, that would yeah. work really well. Um, Audio medium, though, Stephen. Yeah, well, except we're doing a video, aren't we, right now? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, thanks for forgetting. Um, underrated. Process stories are ones you can get coverage on, and, and, and a story that actually happens is better than, than a, uh, a story that doesn't happen. Hey, let's put that on a mug. Huh? Who's with me? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, Carter, Carter, as we wrap up, Carter, as we wrap up, I'm going to, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let I'm going to give you one more chance. Let's just pretend Thank it's you. the top of the show again. We yeah. have a special announcement to make. I'm going to throw it over to Stephen Carter. Carter, what is that special announcement? 8 p.m. May 19th, the uh, Strategist live in Edmonton at the Maharaja Hall. Tickets available at thestrategist.ca. Only $30 each. No service fees. Nothing goes to Arts Commons. Buy your tickets today. We will sell out. Guaranteed. <laughs> that was uh, that was better. That was better. Two take Carter. We're going to leave it there. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. Just, we? We, gotta wait, we gotta wait for the applause. Take your moment, Thank you. Stephen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Live recording of our live show. That's the applause. Oh my god. We're gonna leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 983 of The Strategist. Corey, do we have some music? Is this gonna be a professional operation? He's or not? <laughs> He's not. He's it not gonna it, get... it doesn't start this soon, my man. Okay, oh, okay. well, it's a lot of oh, lag between the round of applause and this. <laughs> <laughs> okay hey, you go. do your thing yeah you do your thing you, you do, do your, your that's a wrap yeah. thing and i'll come in at the right moment oh look he's gonna try to come in that's a wrap <laughs> yeah. on episode 983 of the strategist my name is zane velger with me as always Corey hogan Stephen carter and we'll see you next time hey everyone Thanks for listening to the Strategist Podcast. As you're more than likely already aware, we have our own Patreon account now. If you'd like to be an advisor to Zane for only $6 per month, you can get Thursday episodes for free. It's the only way you'll get them. And if you become a Strategist intern for only $10 a month, you also get live streams. If you want to be an advisor to me and Corey, that's going to cost you $20 a month for us to ignore you. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. See you at the live show. Edmonton, May the 19th.